0: Excellent. We're live. Thank you for joining, Rato. Glad to be here. We're very grateful to be featuring you on the show. It's been fun seeing your content, the supra-mundane Dhamma. Mm-hmm. It's been awesome. Yeah. looking forward to continuing to playfully unpack the Dhamma and in service to all of our fellow viewers that are aiming to decrease their suffering and increase their happiness and well-being and peace.
1: Well, instead of increasing and decreasing, just in this moment, you just throw it out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: There's no fixation on getting rid of suffering or on increasing happiness. You just throw both concepts out.
1: <laughs> you just throw it out, right? That's what is, that's the meaning of the supramundane. And possibly the way to talk about it is by starting with the Pali. The word supramundane that we have been using comes from the Pali word loka tara and lokatara of the world, loka and tara, means to be above the world. Now, uh, basically what we mean by lokatara there, is to be above the conceptualized world, or the world that we think exists. But there's a real world that exists, and the real world is the world of our senses. The world we can see, the world we can touch, the world we can bite, the world we can hear. That kind of stuff is all the world is to it. And yet in our educational system, when we were children, we were given maps and globes and lists of countries' names and things like that that became a conceptualized world. And so when we're talking about Lokotara, we're not talking about uh being above reality we're talking about being above our conceptualized world the world that really doesn't exist except between the ears
0: (laughs) all those fluctuations of mind oh Mm -hmm. man Concepts, ideas, good, bad, the identity.
1: Mm -hmm. And the idea is just to come out of all of that and to be in reality, be in the real world of our senses. And that way, that's the super mundane. But uh, this also is used in the sense of... um, three kinds of views. When the Buddha describes the Eightfold Noble Path in the Sutta 117 and the Majjhima Nikaya, he brings about it in the sense of talking about it in three ways. There are three kinds of views of the world. There is the wrong view, the right view that is an ordinary right view, and then there is the super mundane right view or the Lokatara, the one that's above the world. This is also called noble.
0: Am I frozen on your end?
1: You're frozen on my end.
0: Okay. I'm <clears throat> I'm trying to maybe I'm trying to figure out what the issue is. All right. Um let's see here. Let me see if i can join from my um, from my laptop i don't know what the issue is i haven't had this type of a problem before of course it's coming right at the good time of uh our intro let me see if i can join here from my laptop
1: Okay. Okay. All right. So we had just gotten started talking about where the word super mundane comes from and why we use it. And so in in uh, the Sutta called the Great Forty, Number 117 in the Majjhima Kaya, the Buddha does a very, very detailed but noble description of the Eightfold Noble Path. And there he starts with view and talks about that there is wrong view and there is right view. And basically wrong view is the mentality of the child that says, I can get away with it. I can do anything I want to do and get away with it
0: just grabbing an attachment for my mic
1: okay so getting away with it is basically the wrong view Uh, and the wrong view is basically based upon The freedom to do what we want to do. And what we want, anything that we want that we can't have, is the definition of suffering or the definition of dukkha. And actually, the word dukkha is badly translated into suffering. A better word we could use would be just dissatisfying. So when you want something, that means you're dissatisfied without it. And the wrong view is, is, that I can just go get what I want and be satisfied. And it doesn't matter the consequences. But ordinary right view says, no, you can't get away with it. And we're going to hire cops and, 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 and uh, 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 get an army and I have guards. And if that doesn't work, then we'll get a priest or two. And we're going to make sure that you know that no matter what, you can't get away with it. This is basically religion is ordinary right view, which is saying you can't get away with it. And so they have laws of commas, heavens and hells and all kinds of stuff to convince the one of wrong view, that he can't get away with it. And then there is the third kind of view The super mundane view, the right noble view, which is that you don't know whether you can get away with it or not, but you need to do a thorough investigation. You need to find out really what's going on. We need to stop coming to conclusions and concepts and uh, thoughts that we know, whether we can get away with it or not, and really take a look. Transcend this I know and I don't know into not sure. Let's just take another look. So that's the uh, the foundation of the super mundane is to come away from our attachments to our conceptualized world so that we can draw back and take a closer look. So, that's the definition of the word supramundane, which actually is just uh, a And in the process of doing that, one needs to let go of what we were talking about. That is, the things that we want, and whether we can get away from it or not, or get away with it. And Just allow things to be the way that they really are in reality, the senses, that which we can see, touch, taste, smell, bite, that kind of stuff. That's real. An example of that is neither Seattle nor Vladimir Putin are real. They're merely concepts. For some people, Seattle is real because they're in Seattle and they can see it. There they are. But for most Seattle is not real. Okay. So what is real is what is worthy of being investigated so that we can see really what's going on. And this is a major teaching of the Buddha, is this quality of not only investigating, but continually investigating, in the sense of investigate, and then investigate again, and then later investigate again. (laughs) Glad to see you getting all comfy there.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we won't um, pass too much time describing the experience that was apparently being had over here, but the main computer froze and shut off and had a temporary laptop fix. And now the main computer is back on and I have heard bits and pieces of what you were sharing and there was a lot of profundity that you were unpacking along the way and i would like to resume at a place where i felt like i was still hearing what you were saying which was that the the active mind that is constantly fluctuating in discursive thinking from idea to idea to concept to concept is always separating by name and form and shape and so there's never the <clears throat> the stopping of those fluctuations of mind to be able to feel what is underlying everything. Um, <clears throat> and then there's a perpetual investigation into, well, self-inquiry, who am I? Also inquiry into what exists when there is not this discursive thinking, what is left? and reality reality yeah cool so if you want to pick it up from from there i would love to continue playing there and then we'll see if we can get to some of what you were saying in these last couple of
1: minutes as i was switching technology okay let's put it this way then over a period of 2500 years since the time of the Buddha, there has been a number of episodes uh, that have brought about some changes. And you can actually see how those things evolved. An example of that is the concept of metta and uh, the Brahma viharas was an old concept before the Buddha. And that that uh, got kind of tacked on as part of his teaching and that the concept then of may all beings be happy is what within about 500 years evolved into the bodhisattva ideal of I've got to wait at the door of enlightenment until all beings be enlightened and then I can be enlightened too now that's obviously ridiculous It's obviously ridiculous because it's almost as ridiculous as the Mormons uh, uh, baptizing people who are already dead. So uh, the bodhisattva ideal is ridiculous in the way that uh, if uh, one has no role models, in other words, there are no enlightened beings then how are all the other beings going to know what enlightenment is and in fact that's the problem with the Western Buddhism is none of the people in the West have even a clue about what enlightenment actually is they've uh, got concepts about it and those concepts are normally based in the culture that they were raised in which has a lot of Christian influence to it okay so uh this time evolved through the Bodhisattva period into later the Tantric period and that Tantric period basically talks about it in the sense of being at one with all of reality and that um, that becoming all of reality or being one with reality means that you're part of the show, which means that you are the show, and this is where heavy duty mystical magical thinking was brought into Buddhism, into the teachings of the Buddha. And so it has gone through evolutions of devolvement. And that you could talk about that devolvement was that it devolved from uh freedom from religion into a religion. That was the evolution of teachings of the Buddha over the past 2,500 years is it devolved from a response or an action or freedom from religion into being a religion. But not exactly. Basically what happened was is that a, a religion grew up around the original teachings almost in the way of making a protection. So everything that people hear about Buddhism in the West is the Buddhism, the religion of Buddhism that grew up around the real teachings of the Buddha, almost like a protection. Think of it as a gilded box that's highly, highly jeweled and very specialized. And everybody wants that box, but nobody's opened the box to find out what's in it. And the real teachings of the Buddha is inside the box, not the box itself. But the issue is, is that everybody loves the box because the interior of the box is not very interesting to most people. In fact, you can say, you could go so far as to say that the inside of the box is empty, sunyata. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there's a very practical way of doing that in the sense that we do have to open the box to recognize that the box is merely a container, that the religion of Buddhism is merely a religion, and that uh, we could go so far also as to say then that religion is um, the answer that people have to uh, barbarism, or uh, let us say, when children are born, if they are raised without any rights, rules, rituals, or anything, then we will not be able to have a society. We'll just have a bunch of barbarians. And so society has been brought about by having some order and some rules. These rules then uh, have to have an order to them. And so, as I was saying in, uh, originally, The ordinary right view says you can't get away with it. We're going to have some rules here, and if you break those rules, you're going to get punished. So we talk about it then, and this is actually the law of karma. Now, the law of karma exists in every religion. In some religions, they call it a god. I call it the karma machine. Now, what is the comma machine, or what do people think of karma? is that if you do right, you'll get good results, and if you do uh, uh, wrong, you'll get bad results. This is actually the teachings that were common in the time of the Buddha, and that's what religion is all about, in the sense that if you do good, you'll get into heaven, and if you do bad, you'll get you'll go to hell. But in some religions, there's an escape clause. It's called mercy or grace or something. Uh, It's a get out of hell free card. And A lot of people think that, oh, if I get my get out of hell free card, now I can go back and do wrong and get away with it. That's called hypocrisy. And... Religions are filled with hypocrisy when they have that issue of uh, you can get away with it because you can get forgiveness. But the noble Dhamma, the super mundane Dhamma, comes out of all of those concepts of heavens and hells and future um, results of current actions. And so the Buddha actually was not against comma in the sense that there are some good actions that do lead to good results. If you're thirsty and you drink water, you are uh, quenched of your thirst. That's a very good, clear example of good action, giving good results. If, however, the bottle is full of arsenic and you drink that, then you will have different results. That's a bad action, drinking arsenic, giving bad results. If we understand it that way, then we can understand that there is a causal link between the results and the action. That most of religions will have a non-causal link. It's just because you did that later, you're going to get punished without looking at how that action is linked to the result. And so uh, the Buddha talks about it also in the sense that uh, fire requires a fuel. That's the cause and effect relationship right there. What fire do you know of that has no fuel? Do you know of a fire that burns without any fuel at all? I'll give you an example of one who, where people think that the fuel exists, or the fire exists without a fuel, and that is reincarnation. Reincarnation means that this person dies now and then pops up later. What's the causal link between the two? There is no causal link, that's the issue. We cannot see one. And so the real teaching of the Buddha is much more about causality. Causality, the cause and effect. In fact, there are several words in it in in Pali. One is idiopapajayata, which is general causality. And then there is another word that they talk about that is translated as uh, dependent origination. Those are actually just two Pali words that mean something in the Pali. But when you translate them separately, it gives you silliness, okay? Dependent origination. The actual Pali is uh, paticca Samupada, or in the, uh, the Thai language, it's paticca Samupada. So paticca Samupada actually is talking about the cause and effect that happens in the mind. And there is a number of causes that happen, a sequence of events that happen in the mind. And that that sequence of events, if it is ignorant, we're not watching what we're doing. If we live by concepts, then that conceptualized thinking is going to wind us into the position of wanting something that we don't have, which brings us on to the four modes of clinging that will then take us uh, or we can be then reborn into a woeful state. So these woeful states happen moment by moment in the mind, they're not some woeful state that happens way off into the future, everything has a causal link, and wanting something that you don't have, for, uh, for instance, will lead to the causal link of becoming a hungry ghost, the preta. right? The hungry ghost, somebody who wants something, wants something and wants something and wants something and wants something, they go around haunting their whole environment. Every place they go, they keep wanting things and wanting things. And this is called the Preach of the Hungry Ghost. The one that I see most often in the Western world is people are reborn as animals. What is being reborn as an animal means you, is if it, we're not talking about bugs and uh, insects, we're talking, or even reptiles, we're talking about draft animals. Horses, bulls, draft animals that have to do what they're told to do. Donkeys. I remember seeing a donkey in India one time, where the donkey was tied to a large um, uh, looked like a, a, a small, you know, four or six-inch tree that was cut down. It's a long pole about thirty feet long, and one was tied, one end was tied to the donkey, and the other was tied to a millstone, and the donkey went around this big circle over and over again while the guy put sugarcane stalks in his mill and out came sugarcane juice and he sold it for 10 rupees a glass. It was warm. It was out in the hot sun, but it was something to drink. I mean, that's all you had then. Guess how much of that sugarcane juice the donkey gets? The donkey's doing all the work and the donkey don't get no juice. Guess what? IBM and um, uh, Microsoft and uh, uh, Google and a lot of these companies have a lot of donkeys working for them. And all of that juice comes in in the form of corporate earnings and the donkey don't get none. This is how our lives are lived, that the corporate uh, crowd uh, keeps the poor poor. It keeps them thirsty. You want that, do- that uh, donkey thirsty keep him working. And so this is how the life of most of us uh, in the West live our lives. We live our lives doing what we're told to do, going along to get along. And we don't like it. That's why we call it work. We call it job. Nobody calls it, I'm going to play today at the office. Right? because it's not play. he's not enjoying it. he's working and not only is he working but he already is resentful because he knows he's not going to get paid all that he's worth because some portion is going to be kept by the company like most of it so here we are living our lives in woeful states of going along to get along, doing what we're told to do and that we got used to resenting it The trick is, why don't we do what we want to do for fun and profit? That's the question. We go around doing what we're told to do and resenting it when we can, in fact, go around doing what we like to do and loving it. That's the real teaching of the Buddha right there, is that we... Uh, get ourselves into a woeful state because of the concepts, conceptualized thoughts. But if the donkey who is walking around that treadmill path that he's got is actually enjoying his scenery, Paying attention to the people who were um, uh, getting his sugarcane juice. The donkey may even ask him, don't you like my juice? Maybe they'll start petting him and he'll have a good day. But most donkeys just go around the path over and over and over again, drudgery. Oh, poor me. I'll have a pity party. I got to do my work and I'm not going to get paid. So it's the attitude of us donkeys. They keep doing what we're told to do, not enjoying our lives. And it's all just a matter of attitude. Basically, what we mean by attitude here is the Pali word is sama Sankapa and it's a feature of the Epo Noble Path. with not only right view to open our eyes and look and pay attention to see what's going on. But the next act, item is, is that we have to remember to pay attention. We have to remember to look at what we're doing. And that memory, then, is the most important skill to be developed. That's called the skill of sati, to wake up, wakey, wakey. Sati is very close to the word bodhi or bode, just to wake up. And we can actually use that in contraposition to what we would normally think of uh, as daydreaming. And most of us go around daydreaming all the time. What does that mean? Living in a conceptualized world, daydreaming. And we could come out of that daydream and be in reality. If we can remember to wake up and look at what's going on. But often when we wake up and look at what's going on, we recognize that, oh, I was, now that I'm waking up, I recognize I was in conceptual thoughts. And most of the conceptualized thinking is actually critical thinking. Critical thinking means I like this, I don't like that, this is good, this is bad, let's improve this, this house is okay, but I need a bigger house, I need a tower, I need the name Trump on it, I need this, that, and the other thing, and so... Our conceptualizations keep us in suffering because we want things over and over again. We either want to make an improvement or we want to destroy. So you can actually see that conceptualized thinking of criticism or critical thinking actually is the source for the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. What is the cause of suffering? Greed, ill will, and delusion. What we mean by that is the delusion is the critical thoughts of this is good and I want it, or this is bad and I don't. I'm just putting the teaching of the Buddha in a more um, uh, westernized uh, language so that we can understand that it's in the mind that causes this stuff. That greed is a concept of critical thinking. And we can't, when we recognize that critical thinking, we can come out of it and start having nurturing thoughts instead. That when we were very little babies, when we were 10 infants, every one of us got a great deal of loving care. We were nurtured. Any child who is not nurtured probably will not survive, and if he does survive, he'll survive with very heavy uh, psychological problems. But most all of us are nurtured when we're infants, and that nurturing stays in, in gear until about the age of four, five, or six, and that's when we're given the ABCs, and the one, two, and we're told to go to school and pick up our clothes and uh, put your cell phone down and do your homework etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's when the child is introduced into the critical world of our society and criticism becomes the predominant and nurturing takes the back seat sometimes it's even left out at the back end and so what actual the practice of Anapanasati would be would be taking these parts of the eightfold noble path this ability to wake up, to pay attention to what the mind is doing, to recognize that much of the thoughts are critical thoughts. And we can come out of those critical thoughts and start nurturing and having nurturing thoughts instead, to nurture ourselves. And by doing so, we're removing unwholesome thoughts of wanting things, wanting improvements. And uh, coming into the realization, through nurturing, that everything is actually okay. I mean, look around the room. The room that you're in is safe. There's no crocodiles, (laughs) there's no alligators, there's no uh, uh, cops coming in, uh, no SWAT team, no problems at all. And yet many people will have thoughts that lead to fear. But the reality is, is that there's nothing to fear right now. Almost always that's true. Almost always the things that we are afraid of are because we remember tragic situations in the past and then we plan for those tragic situations in the future to where right now is okay. That's another way of looking at it in the sense of the locatara to be above the world means that if we are in reality then we're out of the concepts. Reality is what's happening right now, and right now through the senses is quite nice. This next breath is a really nice breath. The breeze is a really nice breeze. Everything is okay right now in the present moment. Well, let's look at it in the sense of this present moment here and now. Here is the reality. Then you can say, well, how big is my reality? Well, it's as far as I can see. I can see out to the end of the road or out to the end of the drive, and then I can see a little bit of the road, and then I don't see anymore because of all of the trees and whatnot, which means that things that are beyond my sight are really not in reality. I can remember. I've been down that road, but now when I go down that road in my mind, I'm not in reality actually going down the road. I'm in conceptualized mind, you see. And so if we learn to live in reality, reality right here, right now is safe. So now that we've defined what is here, we can also look at now because anything that's in the past is gone, it's dead, it doesn't exist. And everything in the future is yet to be. And it probably won't be when it does come the way that we thought that we wanted it to be when we were thinking about it in concepts in the past. So the whole teaching of the Buddha is just to come into the present moment, coming out of a conceptualized mind, and just be here now. And only have input that's real input, rather than mental input. That's why the Buddha talks about it in, in the case of six senses. We have eyes, ears, tongue, nose, and touch. And then we have that sixth sense, which is uh, thinking. Now, not all thinking is talking thinking. There is other kinds of thinking going on. One kind of way of spending thinking is in the senses. If you're actually looking at something that's happening, you're not doing a whole lot of thinking about it. You think about it after you look at it. While you're actually watching something, uh, the mind moments that were spent is actually in senses. Another way that we can spend mind moments is in actually feelings, which is actually part of our senses anyway. Now we're feeling senses. But most of the time we spend in, um, not in reality, we spend in mental concepts, thinking. And so when, when we have those thoughts, we generally have thoughts about the past and about the future. If we think about the past, normally the things that we remember are the tragedies. We don't remember the really good things. There's a lot of really good stuff happening, and we don't pay much attention to it. We only kind of pay attention to tragedies. An example would be that little Billy is uh, drawing with crayons on the wall in his bedroom, and his mom comes in, and instead of looking at what he's doing, she freaks out about the wall and the paint and landlords and all of this kind of stuff and punishes him. For writing on the wall. He'll remember that. She could have taken a different tact. She could have said, my, this drawing is wonderful and marvelous. I'm gonna go get you a paint set. But she didn't. And he could have been a Rembrandt. But now that he's had that tragic situation of writing on the wall and having to clean it and being punished and all of that kind of stuff, he winds up not being a very good artist. Doesn't use his hands much. He makes that kind of decision when he is really early, and then he doesn't do, uh, develop the motor skills that he needs. So, these are the kind of tragedies that happen throughout childhood, one after another, after another, that put together how we conceive things and how we look at it. So that when we're adults, we begin to remember the things that happened in the past, and we're always going to wind up remembering something bad it happened because we paid attention to what was bad was happening we were paying much attention to all the good stuff this is actually instinctual behavior we are we are actually wired that way it's called the self-preservation instinct that when the self-preserve or the organism is in danger then um
0: (laughs) oh that ties so perfectly with dependent origination the self-preservation instinct because that's the very that's the very first link is ignorance or knowledge and that very first link is that self-preservation instinct is are you totally okay with no self with anatta and if you're totally if you're totally okay with emptiness if you're totally okay with infinity If you're totally okay with no self with anatta then you have only right action emerges perpetually because you're always coming from oneness you're always coming from love you're always coming from no self you're always coming from reality and
1: you're not you can remember if you can remember but remember we've already been uh wired to our habit systems and we were not raised by buddhas we were raised by families who perpetuate their families uh problems so all the uh the dukkha that comes with the family is passed on to the child many many examples of that one of them is that they know that a child who is raised in a household that is um Uh, prone for domestic violence. When that child grows up and is living in another household as an adult, that household, too, will be prone to domestic violence. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll do what he's told. That's the hurting instinct again, or um, uh, going along to get along, or uh, being a member of the pack. This is how we basically, we operate as human beings. This is that we follow the herd. We are, have, in fact, that herding instinct is part of the self preservation instinct in the sense that those in the middle of the herd, if you've got a herd of wilbur bees and you've got lions around, then the ones in the middle of the herd are the safest and the stragglers are in danger of lunch. being lunch so that's our herding instinct and we do that as children we pick up on that and go along to get along because we're looking for safety security from that self-preservation instinct and i must also say that it's mislabeled that the guys who came up with the terminology for self-preservation instinct would have been more correct if they had said, organism preservation instinct. Because it's actually the organism that's being um, uh, perpetuated. And when I mean that organism, I'm talking about the body, the feelings, the mind, and the objects of the mind, the Satipatthana. The Satipatthana, the human body, the form, and all of its feelings, are real and so uh, that organism there does not necessarily have a self or a center or a soul but it does have that instinct for preservation so whenever the mind ha- perceives danger the self-preservation instinct is going to come up get in gear and try to protect the self from danger. And often that danger doesn't exist. It's not real. Or we create it through the perception of the danger. Several examples of that. The 14 year old boy is walking down the hall in high school, and around the corner, he sees the bully and his two friends coming down the hall. And he sees the bully and he freezes. He's afraid of the bully. Naturally, the bully is going to pick on him. The other way to handle that is he sees the bully coming around the corner with his his two friends. He can go in one of two directions, either in the direction the bully is going. Now he's ahead of him, or he can take off in the opposite direction and pass the bully right by. If the bully says something, he can say, I'm in a hurry now. I got to go. Bye. But no, because he was afraid, he stood there and he got bullied. More than likely that's going to happen the second time. Now he's in the habit of getting bullied. And he didn't have to get bullied at all. He doesn't have to hit the bully. He can just take a hike. So this is how we learn that uh, we often create our dangers through the perceptions of fear. And we pick up these perceptions of fears because we find as children so much to be afraid of. And we continue along as adults, being afraid of this, that, and the other thing. In fact, that's what society is really all about. Humans have built a society in order to take us out of the jungle. We build cities for safety. And yet all of these, (laughs) all these jungle humans come into the city and when they come into the city for safety, they bring their jungle with them. That's why they call it a concrete jungle. The humans have made the jungle and we make it with our fear. We see jungle when in fact, there's no jungle there. If we would pay attention and look at things reality wise in this present moment, we could recognize, no, we're safe here, there's no problem. And so this is what we need to actually practice. This is the practice of Anapanasati, Then is to take this right view, this right uh, sati, to wake up, and the right effort to change the kind of thinking that we have from critical thinking into nurturing thinking, which means that... The kind of thoughts we're having are nurturing thoughts. They're wholesome thoughts, completely wholesome thoughts, thoughts about everything's all right, everything is okay, not a worry in the world, everything's all right, everything is fine, nothing to do, no place to go. This spring comes and the grass grows by itself. this is wholesome thinking and we need to practice that so that we can get ourselves into the very shape that you're in right now wouldn't you like wouldn't you have a marvelous life if you run around in the position that you're in right now so getting ourselves into that state is something that's quite valuable to do over and over and over again we work to get the mind in a really really good state and once we get good at getting the mind into a good state we begin to grain confidence i can do this i can come into this state of well-being then that's what brings on that fourth element of the eight noble path sama sankapa right attitude the attitude of a winner, the attitude, I can do this. But in fact, the Buddha says that the first knowledge or the first wisdom on the path, which means the first step of the noble path, a lot of people talk about that, especially in the stream entry. What's the stream entry? Well, the first step of getting on the path is the knowledge that no matter what happens, no matter how instructed the mind gets, the student can throw those thoughts out of the mind and see things as they really are. To come to the present moment, when you know that you can do that no matter what, that's the first step of the path. You have that confidence, the confidence of I can handle this. Whatever comes by, I can handle it. Now, the, this "I" that I'm using is merely a um, a linguistic um, convenience that we don't have to say "I can handle it." it it's uh, it's the it's an attitude we're talking about a can-do attitude that, in fact, in some cultures, you've heard it talked about uh, in the in the sense of hold my beer have you ever heard that expression (laughs) hold my beer which means i'm going to go take care of this situation i can handle this all right so this is the way that we have with the attitude of the can do attitude the can do means that no matter what kind of pity party no matter what kind of anger what kind of feelings that i have i can change those feelings I can come out of that and bring the mind back into a really, state. So this is the practice of Anapanasati is over and over and over again, remembering to wake up, to take a look, throw the unwholesome thoughts out of the mind, and then take a power, what do they call it, uh, 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 a victory lap. That's the word, right. Have that victory lap. Have that, <clears throat> I got it, kind of feeling. Got this one. Can do. So that's the attitude. And when we get those four things together, the right uh, view, right sati, waking up, right effort. And for the beginner, there's going to be some effort. But later, it gets really easy, especially when the attitude gets really strong. And with right attitude together, that brings about what is called right unification of mind. The right unification of mind means now the mind is together. Now the mind is whole. It may not stay that way, but right now it's good to go. It's fit for work. It's ready for the job. This uh, uh, right unification of mind in the Pali is called sama area samati. Now the word samati actually, in this case, is meaning that we're gathering the factors together. This is not concentration. Concentration is actually removing factors that are needed. My my uh, uh, example is um, frozen concentrated orange juice. Does anybody drink frozen concentrated orange juice? No. They take the water out of it and freeze it for transportation purposes. But when you get the orange juice home, what do you do? You make it samati by putting the water back in it. You make it whole and complete. So concentrated orange juice is not samadhi orange juice. And yet so many people are trying to practice a, a meditation to build up concentration, which is basically just working too hard. This is actually a piece of cake. This is easy peasy. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's not hard to do. Just cheer up. That's all you have to do. Lighten up. Let go. But we have to remember to let go. We have to remember to brighten up. We have to remember to gladden the mind. To make it bright. And when we brighten the mind and we do that over and over and over again, we get the idea that we can do this no matter what. I can handle anything. So, that's it. That's all there is to it. Actually, we could say then that there's two skills to learn. One is the, the skill of learning to get into this marvelous state. And then the second skill is to maintain that marvelous state, to put on, to be on guard, to make sure that unwholesome thoughts are not coming back into the mind. So the teachings of the Buddha is actually quite simple, but you can see that it's been a huge, huge religion has been built around it. uh, a, A case. Actually the real teaching of the Buddha is quite dangerous. I mean, if everybody had the attitude that we were talking about right now, the GDP would fall apart. Yeah. Yeah, if everybody was satisfied, if I don't yeah. need anything, yeah. I don't want anything, I don't go shopping. Nobody goes shopping. Nobody buys anything because we're content and comfortable with what we have. A whole lot of people have already been up two, three, four, three, four, putting you to work. They're going to be unhappy if you quit and just hang out and enjoy your life. They want you to go back to work. They want to make some money off of you. All right? So that's dangerous. That actually happened. Buddhism was wiped out in India. Took them a couple of hundred years. Killed about 100 million people. But the Brahmins and the Moguls together, they got the job done. They wiped it out. Guess what? No, they didn't. No, they didn't. What happens if you um, uh, have a handful of jello and you squeeze it really tight? It leaks out all over the place. Well, that's what happened to Buddhism. It just leaked out all over the place. Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Tibet, China, Korea, Japan, Cambodia. Vietnam. I think I covered them all now. <laughs> and so it was dispersed. But it was also dispersed in a way now, so that it became kind of secret. In the time of the Buddha, it was absolutely open. But it became kind of secret. There's another reason to keep it secret. And that is, is that if someone who holds wrong view, and then takes on ordinary right view, thinking that I can't get away with it because I'll go to hell or the cops will stop me or something like that. When he's introduced to a uh, super mundane right view, the possibility of him falling back into wrong view is very high. So we have to introduce right noble view and the right noble Dhamma in a way that it invites people to come out of their magical thinking into the real reality, rather than coming out of their magical thinking and then start doing harm that they didn't do because of their magical thinking. So these are the dangers. And for that reason, the teachings came to the point of that the student had to ask the right question to the right teacher at the right time for that student to get the Dhamma. Other than that, all he's going to get is Buddhist religion. Many monks will ordain and stay ordained as monks and never learn the real teachings of the Buddha. But all throughout history, there has been that noble Dhamma that has been hidden away And uh, I know for sure that it's been hidden away in places that I've, I've, I've known of, especially Laos, Burma, excuse me, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand, because I've spent quite a lot of time with monks in those three traditions. And each one of those traditions has the noble teaching of the Dhamma without having the connections with the others basically what i'm saying is is that one time when i first was introduced to bhikkhu Dasa, i thought very highly of him as if he were the only one who really knew the dhamma later on i found out that oh no the early history of bhikkhu Dasa was how he connected up with the other nobles but what happened was is back in the 1930s after he had been a monk for about 10 years he was in bangkok studying uh Pali, very deep into the Pali studies, and he was invited to give public talks, and he started giving public talks, and he started teaching the Noble Dhamma. Some of the people in the audience didn't like what he was saying, because they had ordinary view, and so they made some complaints, and it wound up him being brought up on the charges of trying to uh, break apart the Sangha to destroy it, this is in the Pali is called Sangha decessa, which meant that in Bangkok, there was a huge trial and Bhutadasa Bhik- had to defend, and he had the Pali and the, uh, uh, the suttas to defend himself with, but unbeknownst to him, he had some friends on that uh, uh, as part of the judge board, but in fact, a Sangha De Sessa requires 20 monks we're talking about herding cats. We have nine uh, Supreme Court justices. Well, for the monk, it's 20. They seem to need 20 monks to do all kinds of things, to have an ordination or to have a, uh, a consecration of a, a temple, uh, to make a place at wat, and other things like this. What happened in that trial was is that there was an immense literature search brought about and the conclusion was, and the trial ended with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was teaching the wrong thing, the right things. He was teaching the absolute right Dhamma to the wrong people. That the Sangha wanted to keep the actual real teachings of the Buddha within the Sangha and Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa didn't want to do that. He wanted to let the real teachings of the Buddha out into the public. And he's been doing that ever since. Well, as I said, he had some friends, some friends in really, really high places, like in the royal family and in the top group of monks. There's nobles in Thailand. And so he was introduced to these nobles. And he actually, uh, one of them became his teacher formally. That man was um, Bhikkhu Buda Gosajarn, who was actually the Samdat Sangharaja, the top monk in all of Thailand and was on that uh, panel, on that board of the Sangha Dasasa. That's where he met Bhikkhu Dasa. And so basically now the new question is, is Bhikkhu Dasa going to be allowed to continue to open the real teaching of the Buddha and let it out? Or are we going to keep it secret within the, uh, the, the Sangha, within the order of monks? The answer is right here. Ajahn Po has basically given me the instructions of the orders, let's go out onto the internet and give the super mundane dhamma. Let's let the cat out of the bag. Westerners deserve the real teaching of the Buddha, just like the Thais do. That the Westerners have only the Buddhist religion, and the Thais have for many, many centuries had both sides of it. Both the enter the real teachings of the Buddha, and actually the real teaching of the Buddha be, uh, make monks who are really, really high quality human beings, nobles, uh, honorable people. And because of that, they generally become the abbots of the various temples and watch in Thailand. And for that reason, uh, the nobility of the teaching of the Buddha has been spread around Thailand. And so uh, it's time to bring this noble Dhamma out of Thailand and Laos, because I know, in fact, that, to, uh, that for, I've got a lot of stories about this. I don't want to waste everybody's time. But I, it's, it's really interesting how it takes one to know one, how nobles actually talk with each other so that it's uh, easy to know uh and so uh it's time that the noble Dhamma come to the west and the best medium is with internet so thank you very much for uh, having this uh, opportunity to at least make a, a brief introduction to the actual teachings of the buddha including how the April Noble Path and eventually how Anapanasati brings this state of mind, this bright, happy, joyful, unconcerned state of mind can be brought about and enjoyed by all. But we have Ah. to come out of the concept of enlightenment because enlightenment is way up there for most people. An example of that is the word Nibbana. In the time of the Buddha, Nibbana had two uses. One was that's what you do to food. It's also done with animals. Okay. Have you ever had a hot pizza come right out of the oven? You don't eat it then. It's too hot to eat. You have to let it Nibbana. You have to let it cool off. And when it gets just the right temperature, it's delicious. If it's too cold or it's too hot, then it's not delicious anymore. So, also animals like a dog. Dogs bark and bark and bark. They're territorial, but the uh, the dog can be nibanaed so that it doesn't bark so much. The dogs can be trained. When a dog when a dog is not wild anymore, when he's just a domesticated house pet, it's nibana. That's the way that we want to use the word. Okay. So anytime you're chilling out. That's nirvana. Just chill. Cool out. Enjoy your life. At least enjoy the moment. That's what nirvana means. Means to chill. And so now. Let's give a working definition. Something that can be used for the word enlightenment. Because it's got an actual value to it when you understand uh, how to use the word. You see, the word enlightenment actually was part of the French Revolution, the 1700s, the Age of Enlightenment, which was actually the the dawning of the um, Age of Science. And that's an important point, the, the word has some value. And so let's look at enlightenment in the sense that the primary word in it is light. Well, we have daylight, we have turned the lights on, we have um, the idea that we can uh, see things and know things better with light. So by uh, enlightenment, the first kind then is enlightenment, which is knowledge. To gain knowledge, to be able to see things correctly, to look, observe, note, and to see. This is the first kind of enlightenment. The second kind of enlightenment is not heavy, to lighten up. So, if your mind is bright, if it's lightened up and you're taking a look at what's going on, in that moment, you're enlightened. In fact, the Zen talk about it all all the time in the sense that the, the, the new Zen student is working very hard, wanting something out of his meditation. And uh, he's wanting to become enlightened. And the old master says, Chill out, boy, you're already enlightened. You're already enlightened. Why do you want anything that you don't have? Well, you see, that kind of enlightenment is nothing but a concept. And most people have the concept of enlightenment (laughs) being light, lighten up. That's enlightenment. That's all there is to it. So. Ah.
0: Beautiful. There was so much there that was <laughs> yummy, delicious. And there, was, there were many points of simplifying to the masses that are critical. And there were moments to come in and and play, but you were in flow on great trajectory, covering many different insightful areas. And it was it was quite nice. So let's revisit. Yeah. Let's let's revisit. So what when asked the question what is looking through your eyes, what do you say? I don't understand the question. What? What is looking through your eyes?
1: I don't understand the question. Are you talking about an observer?
0: What or who is looking
1: through your eyes? Um, possibly the easiest way for people to understand that is to talk a bit about psychology, knowing that modern psychology, when they get it right, they're just merely rediscovering what the Buddha has already taught. So, um, within neuroscience, we talk about the brain in regions. There's a lot of different bits and pieces in those regions, but primarily the regions are the anterior cortex, the temporal cortex, and the frontal lobe, the frontal cortex. These are the three parts of the brain. Sigmund Freud uh, used that information with his ego, superego, and id. But most people really never did figure out what Boyd was on about. But one of his students changed the, the language into parent, adult, and child. And that makes it fairly easy to understand. So the the most primitive part of the brain, that which is uh, taken care of, our, uh, they call it the reptilian brain because it's shaped like the brain of an alligator. And in fact, everything that you can do that an alligator can do is done with that reptilian brain. Walking around, breathing, blinking eyes, chewing food, wagging our tail, heartbeats, all of that kind of stuff is done by the reptilian brain. Because anything that a a reptile can do, that we can do, we do it the same part of the brain that they do. But there's a whole lot of stuff that reptiles can't do, that dogs can do. Like communication. I mean, the only thing that alligators can do is either get out of each other's way or confront each other. But uh, dogs have all kinds of um, uh, communication systems. Uh, And so the communication systems that humans have use that same part of the brain, which we could actually refer to then as the parent or the superego. And that's where all of our old past memories are stored, as well as all of our language and things. And now we get to the third part the question that you asked, which is the frontal lobe, the part of our brain, the human brain, that allows us to make connections, the observer, the, the part that can do mathematics two plus two equals four. And then we see two plus two equals four again and again and again and again. And we receive, we can see those patterns. It's the observer. And that observing part of the brain uh, actually takes the most energy. It's the uh, new kid on the block. Only humans have it. Even chimpanzees don't have that part of the brain. There's a lot of reasons why that uh, they think of why that uh, came about. But basically, uh, you could say that it's because of cooked food. That once we got fire and started cooking food, then a lot of the work that we had to do with raw food is done by the fire itself so that we can get much more nourishment out of the food that we eat, as well as the fact that we don't have to have those huge jaw muscles that baboons have to chew it. So when the muscles get strong, smaller, that means that now we can use that uh, highly developed baboon neck area for our own language. This is how that happened. So because of cooked food, we have this huge, huge uh, supercomputer up front. This is what does the observing. But guess what? That part of the brain is often not in use. Why? Because it does take a lot of work. That in fact, in many cases, the the reptilian brain or the child is in charge. That all night long, you continue to breathe. All night long, the heart continues to beat. Why does that happen? It happens because of this reptilian brain. So the reptilian brain tends to be the boss. But now there's the other part of the brain called the superego or the temporal cortex or what is also called the mammalian brain, the mammal part of the brain, that is all of our learned and stored behavior. And so if we are having a dialogue, a critical dialogue, let us say uh, the guy is watching television, he's watching, in fact, he's watching YouTube. And the thought comes, you ought to be meditating. That thought, you ought to meditate. Is coming out of the superego, out of the parent ego state. He's heard it before. You ought to do this. You should do that. In fact, almost all of the language that comes from the, uh, uh, this uh, temporal cortex or mammalian brain actually is uh, words that we've heard from our parents. That's why Byrne calls it the parent ego state. That's all the shoulds, woulds, coulds, ought to be, the way things ought to be. Uh, the, um, the rites, rules, rituals, all of that kind of stuff. And so now the guy is watching video, watching YouTube, and the thought comes, you should be meditating. That thought comes out of that critical mind, that parent ego state. And the child is the object of that. And the child inside says, no, I don't want to go meditate right now. I want to watch a video. And while he's having that dialogue, several things are happening, but watching the video is not one of them. Feeling marvelous and good is not one of them because the child is being told something to do that he doesn't want to do, and the parent is not getting what it wants because the child is not obeying orders. And so we're a crowd inside. Most people don't even know about this dialogue. Why? Because they're not watching, because the frontal cortex, the part that ought to be watching this kind of stuff, is not paying any attention. So basically, sati means to wake up or to put the frontal cortex into gear. To give it some energy. One of the ways of giving it some energy is by taking a deep breath. This is why the Buddha talks about it as anapanasati, in breathing and out breathing, and... Uh, to be mindful of this in the sense of uh, when we say sati or mindfulness of breathing, what we're really meaning is, is that we have to take control of the breathing. If we do not control the breathing, then the mind will just wander right away from it because the mind's got no skin in the game. It's got no attachment to it. So when you say watch the breath, people don't watch it very long and the mind wanders away. But if you start to control the breath in the sense of breathing in long, that long, deep in breathing will actually help put the mind in gear. It'll give it the oxygen it needs. And also the long, deep out breath will help rid the body of carbon dioxide. And so breathing is a major part of one's right effort to take the effort to actually start breathing well. And by doing so, we're paying attention to the breathing, which means that on the in-breath, we remember to take a long, deep in-breath. And on the out-breath, we remember to take a long, deep out-breath. So every breath that you take on an in-and-out cycle means that you have two points of sati. That's the skill that we want to develop, is to develop the breath, develop the remembering to be in the present moment. You're in this present moment. The way that you can be in this present moment is by having that frontal cortex, this part of the brain, in operation. Get it working. Get it going. And when it's working and going, then it can start paying attention to all of these critical thoughts that are coming out of the uh, parent ego state, out of the uh, mammalian brain. Pay attention to it. And not only that, but we can see how the child reacts to it. So if watching the video, watching YouTube, and the thought comes, you ought to be meditating, and the guy is there for it, he'll hear that thought and says, yeah, boy, let's do that. And so we take a deep breath. And then the answer is, I am meditating. But that takes waking up. You wake up to actually take that deep breath and be meditating right now. You don't have to put the, the turn the TV off or the, uh, the YouTube off and then go sit down to meditate. You can take a meditation breath moment right now because you remembered to. But that also answers your question about what is the observer? The observer is that which we're wanting to put into gear so that you can actually start observing. That's right noble. You see, uh, the right noble view is actually viewing from the frontal cortex. Ordinary right view has already defined what is right and is not viewing anymore, he's just repeating concepts. The right noble view is to really look Use that frontal cortex, open your eyes, your mind's eye, and pay attention to what's going on. And one of the things that you begin to see is is that, hey, you can feel the way you want to feel. All our lives, we spent our whole life talking ourselves into feeling bad because of that parent ego state in our own minds, plus the language of the parents and uh, uh, teachers and all that we had when we were kids. And so that's the normal world that we live in, is in a dialogue between the parent and the child and the parent and the child. But when we wake up, that means now we're putting that frontal cortex into gear. And the frontal cortex now becomes the boss. And the boss is going to tell the, front of the, um, uh, the talking mind, the verbal part, the uh, superego, the parent to stop being critical and being a critical parent, start nurturing instead. And so we begin to nurture ourselves. There, there now, everything's okay. Not a worry in the world. There are no dangers, there's no alligators, there's no crocodiles. Everything is okay, no place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass goes all by itself. Don't, you don't have to do anything. Everything's okay. Now, that's a better meditation than sitting in front of the uh, YouTube saying you want to meditate. Not now, I don't want to. But you ought to go meditate. So, in that regard, the, uh, the parent is confused because he thinks that meditation means you've you got to go do something. Real meditation means that you can stop doing right now. Yippee! (laughs) Yippee!
0: Great. So let's do a recap on some of the core essence. So what we can one of the ways that we can simply express what is being communicated is that There's what appears to be this sun, which is all. And then there appears to be clouds. And the whole game is to cut through the clouds and remember oneself as the sun that is the all. And the core essence of how to cut through clouds has a lot of its roots in dependent origination and has a lot of its roots in anapanasati. So when you become aware of discursive thinking from concept to idea to separate form to separate person to separate shape to separate perception or sensation or object or experience, etc., you recognize that all of that is appearing and disappearing like clouds but what remains is something that's indescribable and that does not have identity there is not an atlas character that that atlas character has been a dream of the intelligence in its play with itself Mm-hmm. And so now we're really at like the core essence, which is turning inward on one's own source of perception itself, going all the way to one's source of perception and wondering self inquiry. Who am I? What is this that is perceiving? And also, is this perceiving sporadic discursive thought or is this perceiving from the heart? Or as you indicated in in neuroscience, prefrontally, is this this perceiving from love? Is this perceiving from wholeness? Is this perceiving from unity, from non-separation, from emptiness and from infinity? And in doing that inquiry perpetually, you cut through those clouds. You remember yourself as this one infinite sun. And you see that everywhere. That becomes your reality. That becomes this radiant enlightenment. And then and then all that's left is just to serve creation honorably, lovingly, in a non-attached way, to maximize prosperity, abundance, playfulness, architectures that serve the prosperity of all. And this is the essence in a small recap of what we've been sharing. And it's really nice because a lot of what Damarato speaks about here is also it's also available. And I'll pull it up so that our audience can see. It's available right here on his channel and the links in the bio below. Also, if you would like to, to go and click and, and look through But the YouTube channel has lots and lots of content on it and lots of just simple explanations of what we've been discussing. And he's also very open to fielding inquiry as well. So people can just reach out and they can hop on a Skype call. That's right. Yes. Amarato? Yeah. Great. And that info is in the, uh, I believe, in the About section. You can find uh, some of the contact information.
1: Generally, and the descriptions have a, a link also. Every, every video that has a description will have a link in the description. Okay. Um, let's go back and visit a couple of things that you said. The first thing to visit is you use the word perception. And within the context of Petitu Samampata, there is actually a specific definition for it and that you're using it something a little bit differently. Uh, And so I would point that out. But let's get back to the point about the sun and the clouds and that you mentioned that everything is arising and passing away. Everything is arising and passing away, that a thought does not last very long, only about a tenth of a second, maybe uh, uh, a fifth of a second, something like that, but then it comes again. Things arise and they pass away, they arise and they pass away, they arise and they pass away. A lot of us have the idea that our lives are DC to where in fact our lives are AC. Everything is up and down. Everything arises and passes away. Each cloud that comes passes away on its own. But guess what? The sun also arises and passes away. Everything is temporary. There's no you, there's no sun, there's no anything that's permanent. Everything is temporary. Which means that everything is in motion. Everything is in flux. Uh, And the whole concept of self, especially from this issue of the, um, the Christian ideal of the soul, is something that's really permanent. This is so permanent that we talk about it in the sense of everlasting or eternalism. But in fact, everything is temporary everything is temporary something is new i don't know what that is but it's something new (laughs) is that a back scratcher
0: yeah it's this massager it's so good ah okay yeah
1: please continue you were on a great point okay well this point about a Nietzsche, everything is in flux. Basically, the way that our, um, uh, uh, the anatomy works is, is that it's hard to pay attention to the things that are not moving and, and see things that are moving. For instance, you can look at something or you can just look and have what we call gazing. So let us say that you were gazing on the floor and all you kind of see is generalized floor but if you see an ant or a, a tick or some small animal crawling on the floor then that tick will get your attention because we see the movement all right generally then when we see something happen that catches our attention and Uh, It brings up perhaps doubts, curiosities, uncertainties. What is that? Is it dangerous? And when we have the thought that it might be dangerous, that's when the selfishness comes in trying to protect the organism from the tick or getting bit by the ant or whatever. And so basically what we're looking at here is that we have this trilokina or the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, or anatta is not a sequence of events, but it's rather a choice that we have. The choice is, is that whenever any event happens, when everything happens in the sense of uh, a change, that we can either choose to be selfish or not about it. If we choose to be selfish. Then that's going to lead to dukkha. It may, in fact, end the ant's life. We'll step on it or something. And so, anicca means that uh, it's an opportunity. Whenever we see something change, the opportunity is either dukkha or anatta. In other words, when we see something change, we can say to ourselves, Oh, that ant is not my ant. Or that tick is not my tick, not my business, not my problem. If we say that that tick on the floor that I just saw crawling is my tick, now that's the selfishness that's going to lead to dukkha. If there is no selfishness then, then the tick is going to be okay. I'm I'm Okay. But if I claim that that tick is my tick or that I feel danger because of that tick on the floor, then more than likely the tick's going to get killed. Why? Because I'm trying to protect myself from the danger of getting bit by that tick. But when it's not my tick, I got no problem. Some people will get so upset with ticks that they go around killing ticks all the time. It becomes their business of doing nothing but going around killing ticks, or ants, or whatever your thing is. Where in fact, the ticks are not dangerous. When we recognize that things that change are not dangerous, then we don't have to be selfish about it. And if we're not selfish, then there's no dukkha. This is what is the teaching of the Trilokana. When a niche happens, when something changes, you've got a choice. Are you going to be selfish about it and try to own it? Or are you going to just leave it alone? Not yours, not mine, none of my business. The spring comes and the grass grows all by itself, not my grass. So Bika Buddha had a phrase like that. That he says that this is a very common phrase in the suttas. And it it, uh, translates into English as nothing is worth clinging to as I, me, or mine. That in fact, it's really hard to cling to something without a concept of I, me, and mine that does the clinging. You can think of it like this. Notice that the arm... And now, if this arm is clinging to it, if I'm clinging here, that means that the arm clinging has to have a clingor to it. That's the part, that's the actual uh, creation of the self, is that which comes into play in order to do the clinging. If we're not clinging, then there's no self. Another way of saying it is this is that the self is the bucket in which we carry our dukkha. If there is no bucket, then we're not going to be carrying much dukkha. The bigger the self, the bigger the dukkha, or the the (laughs) the bigger the bucket, the bigger uh, uh, area we have for carrying a bunch of suffering in, a bunch of dukkha. So this is the way to understand the Trilokana, is is that you've got a choice. You're either going to be selfish and have dukkha, or you can be out of it, not your business.
0: No fixation on anything that arises, including the person, the costume. Mm Mm-hmm. Decrease the surface area for attack by emptying out your bucket of self, all of your... And throwing
1: out the bucket. And throwing out the bucket. (laughs) The bucket's unnecessary. The only reason we have that bucket there is because we think we need it for protection from dangers. And when there is no danger... There's nothing to be afraid of. This is why the Buddha is really big on fearlessness. If we're not afraid, then we don't need the protection. So just remembering that really you've got no problem. Everything is all right. Everything's okay. No place to go, nothing to do, everything's all right. Everything's all right, everything's fine. No place to go, nothing to do, and the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. And so all then we have left to do is just merely relax. So instead of thinking about a cloud and the sun and getting the clouds out of the way so that you can uh, be the sun, a better thing, a better way to look at it is to that I don't care about clouds. I'm too busy having fun. And when I have thoughts of not having fun, I can see those and I can throw them out and say, never mind.
0: Yeah. And then there's the patterns of conditioning that emerge while the claim of I'm just having fun and then they're suffering. And so the turn to cut through said egoic solidity is inevitable because the drill sergeant of awakening comes and that's suffering, dukkha. And you may as well turn in and another one of it's just not wanting to be the void not wanting to be shunyata not wanting to be emptiness yeah well
1: we're in our society we're taught to be something yeah this is it
0: this is this is probably the biggest thing is that uh the promulgation of of the individuated expression which is fine and it's and it's also beautiful because it's, it's cool to paint what you're resonating with, to make music with what you're resonating with, to investigate some sort of science, to make a reg- regenerative energy system for the planet. You know, cool stuff, cool stuff. But do you know who you are? Do you know what you are, first and foremost? Do you Does know it even ones? matter?
1: That's, in fact, one of the questions that the Buddha says is irrelevant. Not only is it irrelevant, but it is dark that he talks about it in Sutta number 2 in the Saba Asava Sutta in the sense of what is worth paying attention to and who am I and what was I in the past and what I will become and all of those kind of questions wind up giving us a bunch of um, issues to solve. Like <laughs> I say I'm this and I'm not that but I want to be that now I've got work to do to go do that and all of this kind of stuff. Who am I? And not only that, but here's a really big important point, and that is is that every human being is a moving target. Today, you can write down all of the characteristics of who you are, and then tomorrow you go and do the same thing. And over time, you'll see that that list changes, that in fact, by the time you get to the end of the list, you may want to go scratch out some of the items on the front of the list and change it because you're constantly changing. Sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. So you can't define who you are because you're in the constant state of flux. So asking yourself questions about who am I is bound to become confusing. A much better thing to pay attention to would be, and it's stated like this in the, in the suttas, that things that are worthy of your attention would be, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is what is like to not be suffering. And this is the path that leads to the end of suffering. Now, that whole thing is talked about in the sense of this present moment. This is dukkha. By observing and seeing Instead of asking myself questions, who am I? Look at the question of where is the dukkha? Where is the dissatisfactions? What are the causes of my dissatisfactions? The causes are my critical thoughts. What are my critical thoughts about who am I? And when I stop that critical thinking and recognizing having critical thinking about who am I is just dukkha. I can stop and relax. And so paying attention to the Four Noble Truths in great detail and really looking at them, and especially in the sense of the way that I've been talking about the eightfold Noble Path, that we come up with the position of personality view. We get over who am I. We're no longer concerned with who am I. Who am I is not important. And that we often identify ourselves as "Who am I?" with the language of society. We identify when, with our. When, God. when I, I when understand.
0: I say just to be clear, when I say "Who am I?", I'm talking about Ramana Maharshi's self-inquiry. That's all I'm talking about. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Ta- I'm not talking. I'm not talking about the what is this individual's goals in the world and needs needs for fixation and needs for cravings and likes and dislikes not talking about that i'm talking about the moth turning inward onto the flame and dissolving
1: i i don't recommend that i don't re- i don't recommend um uh flower uh, uh moths associating with the fire at all. They ought to go stay in the dark and stay safe. Those those fires are dangerous for moths. Yeah. Well, that's what we're talking
0: about. The piercing through the clouds to recognize yourself as the sun. And if and if uh, if we're not if we're not able to simultaneously be non dualistic while also being dualistic, then then that's also a a spiritual flavor that society has taken on that is not simultaneous. And so it, it really needs its simultaneity. We need to both be able to see that this is already an absolute free, ineffable perfection, eternal, and yet In also see already
1: okay. Exactly. And, yet,
0: and yet also simultaneously see that if there isn't arising of some sort of pattern of conditioning of i feel unworthy and i need to do this or that or whatever that there is some sort of turn to cut through those clouds of conditioning and to feel more whole and to feel like you already are it and so mm-hmm. this is just the simultaneity there
1: but yeah. not with a capital i it just this is it yeah That it's it's a pretty big it. And we're a really small piece of it. But at least we fit in. At least we're comfortable. Yeah. We don't have to um, fit into society. We have to fit into reality. And society doesn't fit into reality very well. But in fact, most people use society to define who they are. That I'm only me in relationship to something else. Like I'm an engineer, or I'm a garbage collector, or I'm a doctor, or something like that. So we often define ourselves with our profession, or we define ourselves with our hobby, or we define ourselves with our political interest. But without any of those kind of concepts, it's really hard to define who you are. And it's not even an, a relevant thing anyway. What's relevant, according to the teachings of the, Duke, uh, the Buddha, is dukkha, dukkha Now, a lot of people think of dukkha, dukkha naroda as a long-term goal. Takes years and years and years. They see it like this, and in fact, they, as a meditator, they practice dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. I see dukkha. I'm examining dukkha. I can see dukkha, dukkha, dukkha everywhere, and that's not, that's not a dukkha. That's just a bug. Uh, so, the real point is, is that when we see dukkha, dukkha, naroda, we can see it immediately. If we can see the dukkha, we can sidestep it. An example of that is the farmer who is going to go see his cows on the other side of the pasture. If he keeps his eye on those cows and knows where he's going and watches uh, those cows to make sure that they're there and he's got his goal plan and he goes right to them. When he gets there, he's going to be covered in shit, cow shit, cow pies, because he's not watching where he's going. He's too interested in his target dukkha dukkha Naroda means watch every step and if you see a cow pie don't step in it right now that's dukkha avoid it immediately so when we take that analogy out of the cow pasture and put it uh, into the mind and recognize that there's all kinds of uh, cow pies to step in past, future this place over there, that place over yonder, everywhere is different but all of them are cow pies to step in. Or we can choose to, to uh, be careful about what thoughts we have so that we can always step on firm, solid, clean ground. These are the wholesome thoughts. So you can say that the, uh, the, the pasture is covered with cow pies, but not every inch of land is covered with cow pies. They're just all over the place. So you can also think of your mind that way, that there's plenty of wholesome thoughts to have, but there's also plenty of unwholesome thoughts to avoid, one step at a time, one thought at a time. This is really the teaching of the Buddha, is Dukkha Naroda, right now. Do it right now. Don't say, oh, if I meditate for 10,000 hours, then the common machine will come in with a shakti pot and make me happy. No, your happiness is right here, right now. Your dukkha naroda is right now. Not 10, 15 years, 100,000 hours of meditation from now. It's right this very minute. That's the teaching, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, right here, right now. We remove the personality view when we do that, when we recognize that who I am and the definitions of who I am is completely irrelevant. What's relevant is, am I enjoying this moment? No matter what kind of clothes I'm wearing or mental clothes I'm wearing, So not concerned with who I am, just concerned with this very moment is a pleasant moment.
0: Just awake presence, just eternity, awake presence.
1: Well, as often as you like, as often as you can remember. Our society has words built into it. that, uh, As I said, comes out of the history that leaves us with words like always or all the time. And this is bound to get into that critical parent, thinking that you ought to be doing it all the time, rather than nurturing like, oh, I'm glad you did it now. So all the time is actually uh, a danger word. We should put that on our don't do list. And stop talking about doing it all the time and just do it when you remember to do it. That's the skill that we're developing, sati. And when that sati becomes the skill that is unremitting, what do I mean by unremitting? means like this, that this is a drum and this is a mallet for the drum. Is this the way to beat a drum? Watch what, watch what we're doing. Get it on the screen, okay? And then this this is the way that most people play their drum. Not very musical, is it? But at least I'm playing it all the time. Sati is not like that. Sati is much more like this. That's Sati. Unremitting. Like the Energizer Bunny. Beat, 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 beat. Come back, come back. Okay? Like Anapanasati, mindfulness in breath. Be mindful that this is a long in-breath. Be mindful that this is a long out-breath. In this present moment, be here now. Remember to be here now. That's the real teaching of the Buddha, and we don't do it with the idea of all the time because if you say you got to do it all the time and then you don't do it all the time, you'll feel bad some of the time. But if you practice correctly, then every time you remember, you wind up feeling really good. Because I remember to wake up, to gladden up. But many people will have the idea that when they do wake up, then they feel bad because they were already feeling bad before they woke up. And when they do wake up, they wake up to the point only to say, oh, I'm not watching the breath. Then poor me. My, my mind is a monkey mind. I can't think right. And so people go right down into the, into the garbage, into the sewer when they had just a little bit of sati. But we need to have a big amount of sati, not just a sati to wake up and, and then continue feeling bad, but to wake up completely and to come out of it and to gladden the mind and to be here now, fully awake. Can you wake up completely? That's the sati. And it's a skill, again, to be developed. Over and over again, we practice. But you can do it over and over again because you've got a breath. that's in and out and in and out, over and over and over again. But if you thought that we were breathing all the time, that means that you're breathing and breathing and breathing and breathing. How long is this in-breath going to be if you continue to breathing forever and ever? No, we're not going to do that. We're going to have this... In and out and up and down and back and forth, because that's reality. Everything is in flux. And so your mindfulness will also be in flux. Develop it so that it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back and keeps coming back. But don't make it stay there, because that's hard to do. That's a skill, a different kind of skill to develop. So that's my little blurb about uh, always and forever and uh, all day long. Kind
0: of like since we're at the time of the Olympics, it's kind of like the Olympics of consciousness with these contemplative fitness athletes that are able to sustain said awake presence for 24 hours a day. And
1: that's... 15. But even Olympic champions don't do it 24 hours a day. They need to do it. The, uh, the, the girl who's going to twirl through the air and land on her feet, she only needs that mindfulness when she's getting ready to run, when she's jumping, when she's twirling, and when she's landing. After she does her Olympic thing, she can go home and have a pity party. Especially <laughs> if she. Oh, I, yeah, you
0: know. <laughs> Yeah, and then if a pity party is the way that the creation wants to express itself, then go for it as whatever appearance a solid quantum is all equanimous. So, <laughs> beauty. Yeah, really seems like this boiling down to this eternal awake presence without an actual identity,
1: without a preferences Not like... Liked-
0: this Not way. eternal.
1: Anisha, remember Anisha. Everything Anisha. is in plot. Nothing is eternal. Nothing is. Except source. Pardon? Except
0: source or the emptiness, the Dharmakaya. That which comprehends everything.
1: It's a bit magical thinking, isn't it? And we don't even need any of that. There's nothing eternal. But in fact, anything that was eternal, you could call that with eternal kind of language. An example of something eternal would be a soul or a self. In the teaching of the Buddha, you've heard about uh, Anicca Dukkha Anatta another way that's a little more complex that they talk about it, and that is Sabe Sankara Anicca. Sabe um, Sankara Dukkha. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. Now, what does that mean, and why is there a change to it? Sankara actually means compounded things, things that are stuck together, like um, oxygen and hydrogen are stuck together to make water but that hydrogen and that oxygen can be separated they are not permanently and forever attached together they're not eternal the same thing is true then with all kinds of things that everything that is uh comes together will fall apart everything that's a nature will change. Everything that is uh, changed to the point of coming together will then change to fall apart. Everything that arises will pass away.
0: Marato, and this is exactly why we're at this subject now, which is the question that I asked you about what is looking. That which looks that very source through all of the anicca, through all of it, That which comprehends all of the impermanence. Well, that 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 which
1: can. Let's change that from all. You're you're doing a whole lot of superlatives. Let's go back to that which can, on occasion, see this dukkha rather than that which sees all dukkha. Because there's nothing that sees all of it. There's only you who can see this one. And so that gets back then to the point that I was going in. The all comprehends
0: that... itself. The all comprehends itself. And the all is both absolute
1: flame of Anisha, of impermanence. I don't know about the all. The all that you're talking about is a concept.
0: Mm. Well, there's a little bit more of it in direct experience than concept.
1: Ah, but direct experience has to do with how good you feel. How good you feel is the way that you feel, and maybe the thoughts that you were having made you feel that way, but that doesn't mean the thoughts that you were having that made you feel that way, the thoughts are real. They're just thoughts. So you can have thoughts about the all and feel really good about the all, but then when you have thoughts about all all, minus something then you can have different feelings that in fact here's the point that uh we can come to with this and that is is that feelings are not associated or caused by the all feelings are caused by thoughts that they're interrelated and so you can have thoughts about all and feel a certain way and say that's the all but you can have thoughts about uh, an ice cream Sunday, feel that same way and start a religion around ice cream Sundays.
0: Let's hone in on exactly the essence of what is being played with because it's, uh, it's fascinating. So that which comprehends infinite creation, that is source and that is not a concept
1: wait a minute minute, let's go back say that first line again that that, that which comprehends infinity there is no infinity infinity is a concept
0: well this is beautiful that there is something that we've explored that we uh um that we feel there's something to play with because infinity is a direct realization it's not a concept
1: Mm, No, it's only a concept. And the direct realization that you're talking about is free of the concepts, but what you really like, what you really want, is that feeling. That wah-ha, that wow, that some people have, that feeling, when they have the thought of merging with y'all, it's,
0: it's not a waha or a wow at all. It's actually very equanimous. It's just knowing oneself as the very empty infinitude that this is, and knowing oneself as that and not as the character that's appearing on this stage. And that's what
1: is meant by this. Well, here's the question then. Are you satisfied with that or not? Of course, I am. It's beautiful all right, well, now let's start looking then at the satisfaction and then stop looking at the source. It just,
0: it just is. It's not something that gives me elation. It's just something that is. And when you recognize yourself as that, which is, and isn't that, which is nothing being everything that is the end game. That's what appears to be the end game. And that's,
1: just what is and you get that end game and you still feel lousy and have a pity party then what's the point of having that end game
0: yeah yeah there's no feeling lousy or a pity party well it's people. just the it's just when you're in the shower and you're you are feeling the awake presence in the shower and then for a moment you go into discursive thought and then you return back to the awake presence it's just what's ap- it's just what's appearing there's no judgment there's no hatred there's no okay. ill will against oneself that's it it's just that yeah, i got
1: that's, that that's what we're playing not, with yeah. you can do that without having concepts of the all the all is optional in there well yeah. So there's like an, there's an okay, identity You can't do it without having thoughts of the all and other people can in fact, get themselves and go really, really good state. And they don't have to think about the all at all.
0: Yeah. But when you live inside of your skin, um, you're always going to have conditioning this is without a doubt. When you live inside of your skin, even if you tag your life as awake presence, but living inside of your skin, you're never going to identify as the universe and you're never going to identify as emptiness because you're stuck inside of your skin.
1: Why would I want to identify with the universe? That's just a conceptualization. And for most people, emptiness is a conceptualization. That I can just sit here and do nothing and that's empty enough. I'll give you an example. Don't want to let it last too long because we're on screen here. But you don't need an all to be empty. That kind of is almost contradictory in our language.
0: So, so this this is infinity expressing itself. I just there's no other way that I've been able to express that statement.
1: Uh, here's, here's actually an, an issue. The definition of words is an issue between the two of us because I have – actually, I work really hard to make sure that we define the words correctly. And you're using the word infinity in a way that I understand um, mathematically. i am been in too much mathematics. It's in just, the pure,
0: it's just pure potentiality
1: is another way to say it. Okay, potentiality is one thing, but infinity doesn't exist. Doesn't exist anywhere. For instance, grains of sand is finite. It's a large number, but it's finite. How about the number of galaxies? It's very large, but it's finite. There's only so many of them. It may take you forever and forever and forever is another word to find it, but uh the end of it and count all the galaxies but there's only a certain number of them there we just don't know what that is there's also the theory of large numbers really where the word in the idea of infinity came from was from division by zero
0: yeah that's the nature of reality is that
1: that's Mm -hmm. the nature
0: of reality is something that is infinite that which is infinite
1: no that's that's the nature It doesn't exist, that it's an infinite concept. (laughs) And we do not need the concept of infinity to feel really good. And a lot of people will have the concept of infinity and feel really bad about it. Some will feel confused, some will feel angry. So it's not the concept of infinity or even thoughts about infinity that make you feel really good.
0: So you think if it's not infinite, that means that you think there is an end to impermanence?
1: um the buddha had four imponderables one of the imponderables is how did things get started another imponderable and i i don't know why they use the word imponderable uh i they i think is what he's talking about is it's not worth thinking about but one imponderable Uh, and in fact the one that you're asking about is what are the results of actions and the Buddha says that's not ponderable in other words you will not figure out what's the end of things or what are the results another uh, imponderable is what is the human mind capable of and how far it will go and the fourth imponderable Is what happens after one dies is most specifically what happens to a buddha after the buddha dies what happens the answer to that is not only do we not know but we don't even care the imponderables are um imponderable not because we can't figure it out it's because it's not worth figuring it out and so you guys you just asked the question that's kind of irrelevant. It's not really worth figuring out. Who cares what's gonna happen way off into the future? The question is, can you enjoy this present moment? Who cares about how things got started way back in the past?
0: Because because what what assists oneself with enjoyment of being awake and being present is knowing their true nature as infinity, as emptiness. No, that's just a concept.
1: Is. You can be completely awake and not have that concept of the
0: thought. Yeah, but it's really,
1: you're probably it's not awake
0: after, after viewing enough patterns, though, of behavior and action, conditioning, that mm-hmm. the less the less that one has bathed in emptiness and infinity, the more conditioning is present which means there's more discursive thinking, which means there's more unworthiness, which means there's more separation. And so this game of recognizing oneself as this boundless infinite intelligence, which is what this is and that it will eternally be, means that there's no end to impermanence, which is what I was trying to point at. And so if you think that there is an end to impermanence, that would be something that's finite. But infinity and, and impermanence
1: also go hand in okay. hand. and. Let's go this way. There are six answers to every yes and no question. Yes and no questions have six answers, Okay, One answer would be, yes, it's true. Another answer would be, no, it's not true. Another answer would be, it's neither one. It's not A and it's not B, it's C. The other possibility is is that it's both. Okay, so we've gotten four. Let's use an example of you've got black on one side and white on the other. Why? Why don't we
0: just use the example of infinity, infinity, or permanence and impermanence because that's what we're talking about?
1: Well, that actually we've gotten four, and that uh, is a, a just forget about those four and go to number five. Number five is I don't know and number six is is that it's irrelevant to this present moment so irrelevant so five is
0: mystery five is mystery and six is irrelevance cool mm -hmm. cool so all of these play into the equation which is infinite finite permanent impermanent mystery and irrelevant they all play into the equation
1: all right okay and so That's it. It's irrelevant. I don't care what's going to happen after that. The only thing that's interesting is right now. Yeah, this dance. Way off into the future is a concept. It's not here. This dance right now. That's right. Life Mm -hmm. is not a march, it's a waltz. This is it. This is all we've got. Let's just have a ball. Who cares about whether things are infinite or not? That's not my job. (laughs) Not my business. (laughs) Ah, beautiful. But I understand that a lot of religious stuff is trying to be uh, talked about through concepts. And in fact, I can't even talk to you without using concepts. But we have to know the distinction between what is conceptualized and what is real. And it's really hard for me to talk about real, that I talk about it in concepts to invite the people, my friends, to experience the direct reality without needing concepts about alls and infinities and bigness and becoming one with all. Make me one with all, and I all I got was a hot dog. <laughs> this is a good hot dog. Enjoy it. <laughs> Enjoy the hot dog. Who needs the all? <laughs> oh. You know that joke, don't you? The joke is that the Dalai Lama went to the U.N., and while he was there, he saw a hot dog vendor out on the streets of New York, and he walks up to the hot dog vendor and says, Make me one with everything. And all he got was a hot dog. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But the Dalai Lama knows how to enjoy a hot dog. (laughs) Wow. So coming out of our concepts that we talked about very early in our talk, Coming out of the concepts means coming out of the past and out of the future. And for you, infinity is something off into the future. It's not right here now. I don't have an infinity. I've got a, I've got a flashlight. I've got a stick. But I don't have any infinity here.
0: Oh, that's he so funny.
1: You're like the Grand Theft
0: Auto character that's inside of the finite game that can't prove that it's a ps5 playing infinite games and but i don't
1: care yeah. those things are irrelevant just oh, like other weird. things are irrelevant one thing that's completely irrelevant is does god exist or not that's you, are, <laughs> you are
0: it and it's an emptiness being infinity that's what it is
1: that's the concept also okay the question is, is that if I, if I have that concept, do I feel like that or do I have that concept and want to feel like that? It's just play. Precisely. Precisely. And if we understand that it's play, then we can play. If we, under, if we think that these concepts are not toys to play with, but are real things, then we want them. And now we're wanting things that we don't have. Like make me one with everything is a plea that says I am not good enough right now. And if you make me one with everything, then I will be good enough. And actually, all we have to do is change the attitude. Oh, I'm good enough now. I don't need to be one with everything.
0: You're already everything appearing like a character.
1: Yeah, you're already everything you got. You're already everything you need. All you have to do is just enjoy your life. Be happy. Don't worry. Be be happy. Or like the Zen say, you're already enlightened. You don't have to want anything. You're okay. This is so fun. If you let it be, a lot of people can be here and argue and get hot under the collar and be angry and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's no practice.
0: equanimity. Then there's no equanimity. There's no awake presence.
1: Well, that's because they want. They want their concepts. Instead of so just recognizing that it's a concept. That's all it is just the dance just the play it's so nice everything is all right everything is fine
0: see that's that's probably the essence of the yeah like like you pointed out several times it's just what is is already the dance is already the play it's already perfection and breathe Enjoy your hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> Dance a bit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And if you feel separation, if you feel these malevolences arising, just inquire into awake presence, into oneness. Just inquire into wholeness rather than separation. Mm -hmm. Just be here now. The childlike innocence, be here now.
1: Everything is all right. And you can have that childlike innocence when you're telling yourselves nurturing thoughts. Everything's all right. Everything's fine. You're a good boy. Everything's good. Congratulations on taking this breath.
0: Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Samarato. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So sweet. I look forward to potentially more explorations together. Really nice. Really nice. I
1: I enjoy. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Good to hear. Good to hear. It. And thanks yeah. everyone. Yeah, everything's good. Everything's alright. Everything's perfect. As it is. <laughs> Amen. 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 Yeah. Thanks everyone. Ain't girls too. Yeah, eight girls too. Yeah. A <laughs> women.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We know you've we got many of you have been watching for the entirety of the stream. We're really grateful for you guys. Thank you for watching. We would love for you to leave a comment below with your thoughts on the episode. Let us know how you feel. Mm. Like the video if it brought you value. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. Also, share the video with other people that you feel like this would positively influence. And go and subscribe also to Damarato's channel. The link's in the bio below. It's got lots of great content on there. Very fun, playful. Supra mundane dhamma of course mm-hmm. yes yes yeah Beautiful. above
1: it all just above it all yes in a way we're you you've got infinity that's big stuff but i'm even above that yes. <laughs> i'm above <laughs> i'm just this lotus flower <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah ah! Wee. Well, I'm too a lotus flower. i just got a couple of petals gone. <laughs> uh,
0: you you say say <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you say? Sometimes we feel like we're nuts, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes
1: we feel like a nut, and sometimes we don't. <laughs> Watch closely now. <laughs> Ooh, great. Yeah,
0: wholeness and separation. Wholeness don't feel like a nut. Separation we feel nuts. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, beautiful. Thank you again. Um I'm I'll end the studio, um but you and I stay in the room and I'll just end the stream, okay? Okay. All right.